Market. The S&P, the ISX stocks. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast that, well, is a little less worried about March 31 than most. I'm Scott Phillips, and with me, as always, the good doctor, Dr. Iban Mahanti. How are you, sir? I am very good, sir. How are you? I'm very well. I'll start with my usual weather, weather update, mate, because I know how much our listeners care about the barrel weather. It is drizzly, rainy, and cold down here, mate. I've got to say, it's not a... Uh, well, winter's, winter's arriving in a absolute hurry. How's things up there? Oh, it's exactly the same. It's been raining, like, basically since, I don't know, start of the week. <laughs> Let's bring some sunshine to our to our listeners. How about that? That, that's a, that sounds like a great idea. Let's do that. Or at least as much as we can. As much as we can. Mate, another big podcast this week. As always, a little bit of macro, a couple of bit of macro things, which I think are a little bit interesting. We talk about that. Um, a new player in Buy Now, Pay Later and it's not some wannabe startup. It is one of Australia's biggest banks. We have a big share sale from a CEO and a company that's been in the news for some of the right and wrong reasons over the past little while. And we will talk about, well, the movements in technology stocks, man. I know you're a big tech investor and listeners certainly know that. I'll tell you what, the volatility has been enough to make you seasick recently. So we'll talk about that. We'll talk about JobKeeper. And of course, we will, as we always do, dip into the full mailbag. Another big show, mate. Let's get on with it, hey? Let's do it. Motley Fool Money. For more, go to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Let's kick off, mate, with some macro news overnight that I was, I'm going to say I was a bit surprised by. Maybe I shouldn't have been. If you'd asked me, I would have said the US Fed was ahead of Australia on the pace of interest rate increases. We're recording this on Thursday morning, the 18th of March, and overnight, the US Fed effectively came out and said they're keeping rates on hold, or they plan to, until, well, this, this date should be familiar, 2023 or 2024. The Fed's doing an RBA, mate. This is, I, I kind of, I thought the general view was, and certainly my view was, that the US economy was growing faster than here, unemployment was lower. They seemed to have many fewer reasons to keep rates on hold for as long as Australia. They, they simply seem further along in their recovery closer to their goals i'm a bit surprised that they're seeing a two to three year hiatus in interest rates yeah so so a couple let me let's just backtrack a bit so the feds so basically uh as i have always said i can take a lois job because uh you know governor lois job (laughs) is uh is the easiest job either you cut rates keep it at zero or you copy the fed so i just corrected that i think the feds um feds language changed to saying the fed so fed basically was the first one to change the language from predictive targeting to actual yeah. targeting. So they basically yeah. said, well, we're going to bring it, you know, we need to see sustained basically inflation before we're going to do anything with the rates. Yeah. Um, and, and then basically RBA just copied that sort of, uh, you know, uh, that same uh, idea. It is true that the the U.S. economy is uh, is recovering at maybe a faster rate. It's getting jobs back at a faster rate. But there's a couple mm. of things, right? One is... I mean, when uh, we have been at 5% unemployment, they have been at, say, 3.5% unemployment, right? So there's yeah. that difference. Um, we have not reached 5% and they have not reached 3.5%. Uh, right. So the, I guess the big difference in my mind is I think the rate cut, the low rate in the US and the low rate mm. here in Australia do different things, very different mm. things. The low rate in Australia only drives up equity of house prices, which then the governor thinks should drive up consumer spending, right? Mm. 
the low rates in the U.S. are actually not really, you know, making, um, you know, yes, house prices have gone up, but they have not gone up to the point where, you know, it, it is having affordability issues. The low rates in the U.S. really are all about um, essentially ensuring liquidity in the mm. bond, bond market. And, and I think that's, that's really the story there. It's all about the liquidity of the bond market, which basically allows for smooth functioning of the remainder of the market. Um, and, and, and so on and so forth. Is it necessary? And, and will it change at, say, 1%? I don't know. <laughs> the, the market mm, has mm. been, you know, the bond market has been betting that the rates should be going up as the yields have been going up. You know, basically they're selling the bonds saying that the yields are going to go up, um, right? And therefore, if, if the government issues new yields or there are new yields, there are new bonds issued at essentially higher rates, people would buy mm. them over the current ones and that they're selling off, I guess, uh, um, and which is effectively pushing up the rates on those yields. So uh, it's not here, there, not there in my view. I mean, is, do, does, does the economy need a lower rate? I think it's it's debatable. I think totally, you know. The it seems even it just seems even less necessary in the US than here. Even at that debatable point, you say you kind of might say, "Well, okay, Australia, we need to get down to US rates of unemployment or up to US rates of growth." I I kind of get that in terms of both the, the depth and longevity. I, I I can't. I mean, we've had much lower growth and much higher unemployment, and rates have been much higher in the past. I, I kind of can't work out a why they need to be this low in general, both here and in the US, but certainly why the Fed. Would, would be forecasting out two to three years and saying, we don't see any conditions, despite this great economic growth and, and you know, really low unemployment, we see no reason why rates shouldn't increase in the next three years. It feels remarkably dovish. It's really, really like, I, I, don't, I, I kind of don't know what would need to happen for rates to go up more in their view. I mean, in my view, there's different, but in their view, I kind of think, man, like, what is it, growth need to be 10%? Does unemployment need to be negative? I mean, what do you what do you finally look for when the rates go up? Yeah, so I think I have an explanation for that. I think, you know, but I think, okay, so I think let's ignore Australia for the time being and just let's mm. think about, uh, so think about the sectors that are impacted. So US is a very capitalist style economy, right? So a lot mm. of jobs mm. are created uh, effectively by various number of industries, right? So mm. take the industry that are the hardest hit. So there could be, so think about the airlines, right? Mm. The airlines still need to borrow money to effectively continue operating, right? right? And that's actually even true. I, I mean, the rates actually being low there is effectively good for airline companies here because they can go out, you know, and it, <laughs> to that market and uh, actually borrow exactly. funds. Exactly, and I'll get to that in a minute because that, that yeah. does impact Australian mortgages as well. Yeah, so so it helps. It helps the. So I think it's all about helping those industries that are mm. that are still affected. So that they have travel, mm. which is mm. airlines, um, you know, hotels, uh, a lot of you know, a lot of commercial property that, say, for example, relies on Airbnb and things mm. like that. Right. So those those industries still need restaurants, businesses, parks, theme parks, and things like that. They have a lot of that. Mm. That that really generates, you know, uh, that's called the lower end of the of the employment spectrum, right? These are not the high tech jobs that can be done from, uh, you know, office, you know, home offices, right? These are going to mm. be done mm. on the ground type of jobs. So I think the lower rates are justified for uh, large corporates that need 
that low rate to actually sustain those businesses without actually destroying the equity equity shareholders. I think there is a ripple on effect. So I think what the Fed, I've always said that the Fed is actually on the right path because what the Fed is doing is not just helping the, the American uh, economy, it's also actually mm. helping the world economy because a lot of these big companies, right? Now, I think <laughs> what the RBA is doing is actually counterproductive in my view, largely because RBA's rates really have no impact on on large business borrowing, right? So if, if Qantas mm. needs to borrow, it doesn't have to necessarily borrow in Australia. It could actually go and borrow in the in the large bond market in the US, right? International bond right. market. And therefore, uh, so what the RBS rates are doing is actually fueling job price, uh, house prices, uh, mm. right? And it's, it's whereas, whereas that's not happening there because those rates are actually fueling business, potential business investments, right? So, I mean, all the airlines, for example, have gone to the bond market and, and taken out essentially, you know, uh, you know, basically money. So I think there is some justification as to why that needs to still happen. And 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 if the U.S. Uh, Fed increases those rates, that has has ripple on effect not just for um, the U.S. market, right, but it has also for the large parts of European markets are closed. Like you know, again, mm. think about travel and things like that. Those people are again have to pay much more to borrow. So I think this is. This is really good for the global economy improvement, um, and they don't need to control the rates, as I said, because it's not having any adverse effect on any particular asset class. Right now, you could argue that the asset class that's only being affected is the stock market, but I mean, yeah. that's that asset class doesn't directly have impact on large number of people, right? I mean, it affects those people who are invest invested in the stock market, but the bond market is, you know, X times larger than, you know, um, right? So the Australian uh, bond market, for example, uh, and the world bond market is significantly larger, several times larger than the stock market. So, um, yeah, so I think there's some justification to what's going on. I think that's very kind, <laughs> and you may well be right. I, um, I, it's, a, it's, a challenging, it's a challenging time, right? I think uh, I, uh, you know, those of us with, with a few more grey hairs than, than, than some of our listeners perhaps remember back to the, the 80s and 90s when Alan Greenspan's easy monetary policy and loose regulation was the panacea for everything until it was the cause of everything some few years later. And I remain concerned. I, I'm gonna, I'll put on record now on the 18th of March 2021, you hold me to this. Um, I think both the RBA and the Fed moving towards actual rather than predicted inflation will be a mistake. And I think we will see in the next X number of years they will actually retreat from that having realized that it's overshot. I think the the reality is we know, at least historically, unless something massively has changed, that monetary policy is a leading indicator. In other words, they change it and then six, nine months later, it has an impact after the full full value of the changes up or down have flowed through the economy. That's always been true to date. Um, I know the RBA in particular, and I assume the Fed is saying, well, we want to make sure it's actually happening before we pre preemptively rise and raise, I should say. And that makes some sense, right? I get conceptually, I, I, I would put my my fifty cents uh, on the table and say that I think in the fullness of time they will go back to predictive rises because by the time they realise that, oops, rates need to go up. They'll either have to put them up faster than they otherwise would like to, or they won't be able to, uh, in part because there's aforementioned house prices, you say, as you mentioned, mate, the house debt. And that may well actually sow the seeds of the next sharper correction than otherwise might have been the case economically. So we'll see. I may be entirely wrong, but I of all of all the things I can 
I, I still, you know, as I said, I, we've been through, you know, 40 years of a floating Australian dollar. We've been through effectively half a century of modern monetary policy being not, not modern monetary theory. It's a whole different thing. Um, but the kind of, you know, post-gold standard monetary policy where, you know, when the economy was doing really, really well, rates were still at 2 or 3%. You know, we're, we're, if, if, we'd, if we'd had put these growth numbers, this, this template of economic stats over any decade in the past, Rates would be at three or four percent right now, rather than zero to one. And I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna put my my chips on the table, as I said, my fifty cents, uh, and say that I think I think central bankers are fighting the last war. I think they're so desperately desperately worried about causing the next GFC or the next '90s recession. They'll do everything to avoid it, and in doing so, I think they may well inflate. It's not a bubble. Uh, and I don't certainly mean that asset prices, I just mean economically, uh, a boom that has to be, you know, remember the 1991 recession here, famously, if you're, if you're a, or infamously, depending on whether you're a Liberal or Labor supporter, Paul Keating said it was the recession we had to have. It was terrible politics, but almost every econo- economist says, yeah, actually that was right, because we got to a point where the economy simply was out of control. And by the way, corporate borrowing was a huge part of that. The, the, the you know, the, the Christopher Scase, Alan Bond days of, you know, leverage up, leverage up, leverage up, cheap money, cheap money, what could go wrong? Oops, that can go wrong. Uh, that ended up being the the cause of of the 1990s recession. So I'm I I hope I'm wrong, mate. I don't I'm not a pessimist. I don't like taking the under on this sort of stuff, but I just, it just worries the hell out of me, mate. I got to say, I really do. I really do fear for the possibility that in their desperation to avoid negative outcomes, they're going to create one. Um, RBA, Fed, monetary policy generally is supposed to smooth out the peaks and troughs, not avoid troughs at all costs, um, because at some point you just simply can't. You create the conditions that cause the next trough, the next crash. So I don't know, mate. I, maybe I'm too negative. Maybe I'm too pessimistic. Maybe I'm too jaundiced. But uh, it just feels very, very uncomfortably accommodative to too kind of all of us. Which I mean, look, I'm paying less than my mortgage. I'm not complaining, uh, at least on that, on that score. But man, I, it just really does worry me. Yeah, like, I think maybe you're right. Like, I, I think... My views, uh, you know, I have a view. My view is basically that the RBA is wrong and the Fed is right. right. <laughs> and RBA, I think, is going to be horribly wrong because I think RBA is inflating the wrong asset, uh, mm-hmm. the asset that's the least productive of the lot, whereas the Fed is not doing that. So I think there is a difference, really. And I think what mm-hmm. I think the difference, other people, I think people need to realize that what the U.S. Fed can do, other governments, even if they have a floating currency, can't do that because they yeah, don't effectively yeah. have the reserve currency. So yeah. I, I think. I think actually, I, if I have to say, I think the RBA is on a very dangerous road, which is probably going to end dangerously. Uh, you know, it's going to end poorly. Uh, yeah, uh, I don't know. I think, I think yeah, you're right. Uh, if it goes badly here, it'll be household debt. If it goes badly in the US, it will be corporate debt. Yeah, and, and maybe saying, of course, which one of those? If uh, maybe they both are fine, maybe they both are, are problematic, or maybe one goes goes badly before the other. Be, be well. I was going to say fascinating to watch. I really don't want to watch it. I, just, I hope I'm wrong. I hope. I hope we manage to just grow out of this and it's all good and we look back and go, man, I was way too conservative. How good were the central banks? <laughs> that'd, be, that'd be a nice outcome, wouldn't it? Yeah. Uh, I mean, that, that, and, and that, well, it's, here's the thing, right? I, th- I think if the central bank, if the RBA is not wrong, it's still not a nice outcome because it's still going to disenfranchise <laughs> hundreds of people who want to actually buy houses because they can't buy houses anymore. So I think yeah. whatever is the outcome, the RBA's outcome is actually at the end of the road going to be bad. <laughs> You keep inflating house prices, other people can't buy houses. You deflate house prices, you're going to cause consumer. So RB is basically caught in what I call the rock and hard place. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think there's got, RB basically has got no wiggle room. And if I'm the governor, I basically would think, well, my term will finish <laughs> and then it'll be somebody else's problem. And then we'll see. <laughs>
<laughs> so. All right. Mate, let's, let's, so let's stick with the bad news theme, unfortunately. We, we're trying to be a good news podcast, but let's stick with the bad news theme just for a little bit longer. Um, I saw some numbers today, and I ha- again, maybe because I'm an optimist. I, I am, like, despite my comments about the Fed and the RBA, I'm an optimist. I, I, I hope for the best and, and maybe, maybe preparing for the worst at the same time. But I saw a headline today, mate, saying that they, someone reckons, it was in The Australian, up to 500,000 Australians could be put out of work when JobKeeper finishes in a little over two, a little under two weeks from now. Um, that's a scary stat, mate. That is that is potentially, again, I don't want to overstate it, but that is potentially economy shaking. Um, I don't think it's recession territory, but I've got to say it wouldn't take much for the, you know, the, the, the virtuous circle of spending leading to job creation, leading to spending leading to job creation, Going to reverse if if job destruction and I don't mean that in a, in a pejorative sense, but you know if if the if the loss of half a million Australian jobs leads to less spending, less confidence in the economy, that leads to fewer jobs, that leads to less spending. I I am I, again I don't want to be a, a pessimist. Though. I'm going to be a little bit. I I, I think the odds are things will be okay. We'll, we'll get out of it, but it's not a zero chance that that this abrupt end of JobKeeper actually undoes the last 12 months of good work and and potentially pushes us back towards, if not into, the recession that we've spent so much money desperately trying to avoid. Okay, I'm going to take the other side on this one. <laughs> good, all right. Excellent. So here, here, here's the other side view, right? So yep. uh, the, it's not, first of all, I'll, I'll challenge or I'll, I'll not challenge it. I'll, I'll say, I'll defer by saying that it's not really an abrupt end, right? Because, I mean, if you think about the way the program was run, the program was put together really quickly, and yeah. it was a very generous program if you think about yeah. the depth and scale of the program, right? It came with, whatever, $1,500. Then it was mm-hmm. tapered down to, whatever, 1200 or 1000 yeah. or whatever. So yeah. there was tapering. So people have been tapered off. So it's not, mm. like, I mean, you could say another taper is needed, and then another taper is needed, maybe. That's know. how I would do it, quite honestly, but, but I'll let you finish anyway, yeah. Yeah, but, but it has been tapered down. It's not, so yep. it's not abrupt in that sense. Like, I mean, yeah. if That's you true. are going to... If you're going to taper it off, you're going to taper it off somehow, whether it's a step, one yeah. step or two step. Yeah. That's a semantic thing, right? So I'll say it's tapered off. Mm. Um, the other thing I think that's probably true, and I think I'll agree with the policy here, is if if you can't, like if, if 1,200 is the support you needed, mm. and effectively, with, like if you take New South Wales, for example, right? I mean, if you mm. can't support, if you can't get back to business at... We, by you know by essentially filling in the 1200 hole right mm. now mm. with the the effect that we're seeing for example on uh, on home equity home equity and you know the amount of money that people are spending on furniture and at mm. uh, uh, west farmers and everywhere else like nick scully and you know jb hi-fi yeah. well then you're not going to survive so yeah. i think that there is a point there right i mean if in this type of rabid spending you can't actually support um twelve hundred dollars then then your business is basically probably not going to survive and therefore you know basically having having that sort of business in the economy really is just postponing the inevitable right so yes so i mean that's the other side of the story right i mean that's i think what the government's view would be um is it right is it wrong it's yeah it's very hard for me to say is it right is it wrong but i mean if you look at some of those retail spending right the retail spending is through the roof right and and then our last point i'll add they've they've done a few things so again so so let, let me backtrack i'm not trying to 
I have, uh, I'm very apolitical, so I have, I have not had to support the liberal policy nor, or the, the liberal or the, or the labor uh, view. <laughs> this is yep. just my economic view. Yeah, and totally. The, so economic view. And then the thing is, there is, so the sectors that are still hurting, for example, uh, you know, there's the education sector that's still hurting, the, the tourism sector is still hurting. Yeah. There, are, there, are, there is freebies being given there. Now, whether that's the right freebie or the wrong freebie, that's a different mm-hmm. question. Right, mm-hmm. like I mean, all these free tickets or half-price tickets. Right, I mean, yeah. Eff- effectively, there is. It's not that the support has disappeared. It's the support is coming in another form. Whether it's the right support or the wrong support, of course, that can be questioned. Right, so, uh, so it's not full tapering of, in that sense. Mm-hmm. You know, certain parts of the parts of the economy are still getting support. That's what I think. So, maybe it'll be okay. I think that's right, man. I think I think you're. I, I completely agree with your summary. Uh, where we may differ or just, just you know, and not that significantly, is just those exposed industries, as you say. I think you're right. If, you, if you're in a coffee shop or a, or a you know, dress shop or a, uh, I don't know, uh, pick something else. Uh, JB Hi-Fi, to your point, although that's not, you know, it's a business that's doing fine. If you're on those businesses and you're not making money, then then we can't help you. I, I completely agree with you. And that is that is the, the zombie business kind of idea, people being kept alive by JobKeeper that, frankly, you know, if you, if, if you can't if you can't sell coffee right now, if you can't do whatever, that, that I understand that. I get that. Um I'm mindful that, uh, you know, wedding venues, tourism venues, educators, as you say, um, uh, sorry, a, a, a case study done on, I think it must have been the ABC website yesterday from memory, might have, I think it was the ABC, um, talking about a lady who, who runs international student accommodation, for example, uh, and that same, that same group. I, I, I think, so what I like about JobKeeper and why I would argue for, for further tapering is it is kind of... Um, it's it's business conditions or business results specific, right? So JB Hi-Fi no longer qualifies for JobKeeper. I don't know if it ever did. Um, you know, the local cafe was no longer going to apply for JobKeeper because year on year, they're now in growth. And that was always kind of the, the precondition for getting the funding. If you're in a situation where, and I take your point, you know, if, you're, if you're a bad cafe and we're still giving you 1,200 bucks, then you know, the taxpayer's fun, you know, keeping, keeping you alive unnecessarily. I completely agree with that. But I have to say at some level, the idea that JobKeeper, because it was, you know, effectively revenue tested, if you like, or or financially tested, it, it, it should, by definition, kind of taper itself, both in terms of the amount of businesses who get it, the amount of money they get, and to some degree, the industries who do get it, because you would expect the ones who, are, you know, this this lady with the international student accommodation, and single example, I don't know anything about her situation. I'm not arguing for or against her particular need, but apparently she has, you know, doesn't staff on. Um, there's no one coming in the door, and she's got like, well, okay, if I don't, if I don't get the money from the government, I've got no cash. I'm going to have to lay them off by definition. And the question for me at a, not even a business level, mate, but at a job level is when, it's not if, when the student, national student accommodation comes back, this business is a real business. These people will have jobs. You know, things will continue. Putting her out of business at whatever default she may owe money to the bank, I don't know. Putting 14 people on the dole queue in the meantime, they may have that on, you know, the flow on effect of cash being spent in the economy, their own mortgages, whatever, like whatever, you know, and then where would they spend their money? That, that whole, I said, the vicious circle, the, you know, the virtual circle goes to a vicious circle. If we can kind of keep that stuff, the kind of fundamentally sound businesses afloat for another six months or whatever it takes. I mean, we know the vaccinations are going through the roof around the world. They're not here. That's a whole different question. But, you know, at some point, international travel returns, international students hopefully return. Um, I just, I, I, we're, so, we're so close. Like we, the light's the end of the tunnel. We can see it. We can almost touch it, right? Uh, and and it just strikes me that if we if we were to cause an economic downturn by temporarily throwing these people out of work, but causing a kind of a you know ongoing problem, that's the bit I feel like there could be. I, I, I'm surprised there's not a cleverer way that's reasonably inexpensive to work out. Maybe it's okay if you didn't make any profit last year, you don't get money this year, and we let you fail. 
you know, or there's something else just as you know, if you're if you're a justifiably reasonable business and you're just simply still in the in the grip of the, the very few sectors that are feeling a very real impact. I got a, a mate on Facebook, by the way, who's a, a roadie, you know, sound for concerts. You know, there's no concerts going on. He's got no work. He hasn't had for 12 months. Um, you know, th- those sort of industries. I, I just <laughs> having done so much work, having spent what is 100 and I don't know how many. I don't know how many billion. 120 was last I saw. Call it 150, I guess by now, but maybe it's not. Um, to get us to this point, I kind of feel like for whatever it would take just to get us to the to, to genuine recovery, you know, across the board, uh, it feels like it just might be uh, not not penny pinching because it's the right thing to look after taxpayers, but. I just hope it doesn't create those negative outcomes that could have been avoided for the sake of another three or six months job keeper for those industries, even under a different scheme, as you rightly point out, who justifiably deserve it. Ah, oh, just I don't know. I, 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 I said when people are complaining, we spent 120 billion dollars. I, I can defend that, but I have to say, if we do that and then, despite all that, you know, cause problems for the economy in April, May, June. It's kind of like, oh, guys, we got so close, and we still managed to fall at the last hurdle. But anyway, we'll we'll see how it, we'll see how it plays out. I, I, I think a, I think that that's a genuine point. So I mean, maybe there should have, maybe there's a way to have a, a similar scheme for those sectors that we know are like you know, maybe it could be sector specific. It could be right, you know, right. as you said, revenue. Like you know, pre-COVID, you had a certain revenue, and then you know, and maybe you had some profit. Or, you know, and and now that you're, you're still in zero because it's a forced condition that we know. Like you know, we know that at mm. some point um, those live shows, you know, they're they're actually a big money earner for the uh, for musicians and artists and things like that. Right, they right. Make, they make more money off it than actually by releasing record albums. So yeah, <laughs> yeah I think that's a, I think that's a genuine a genuine point. Yeah, and and I actually agree with that. So that. Something kind of cool, though. By the way, speaking of the arts and, and a bit of a bit of a little bit of good news, there's been a couple of concerts at some venues. Apparently, Hamilton the musical, which I still haven't seen, but I hear is spectacularly good. The only place in the world it's currently playing is in Sydney, so that's kind of cool. So we'll we'll, we'll climb that one. That's a, that's a, that's a nice sort of result. Hey, mate, let's um let's move to to a very different part of the economy, uh, one that is booming. I don't, I can't think of enough superlatives for the growth, the success of the buy now pay later sector. Um, I'm 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 pretty annoyed that you and I didn't start full pay six months ago, mate, because we'd be on a yacht somewhere in the Bahamas right now. Such such as the uptake of of buy now pay later services, Doc and Scott pay. It, it, it could have been could have been anything. We could have we could have owned the world by now. You, you don't even need to have a product. You just call yourself a buy now pay later provider and you're through the roof. Unless you're hum, by the way, which still <laughs> poor buggers. I I don't I know I should feel sorry for them, but man, everything else is going through the roof. And poor old hum, which used to be Flexi Group, who kind of really did originate some version of this, the kind of no interest payments over long periods of time. Uh, with that Flexi Group kind of offering, uh, well, the Flexi Pay, I think, was the original branding for it. It's, uh, man, <laughs> they can't take a trick. So other than them, everybody's doing well. So well, in fact, this is not news, I'm building it up, but everyone's probably read the headlines. Commonwealth Bank, on the back of actually PayPal last week, I should say, by the way, got into it, but Commonwealth Bank here in Australia announced yesterday they are planning to offer buy now, pay later services for their customers. And... Should say on the news, Afterpay shares went up, Zippo shares went down. So make of that what you will. Um, this is a this is a fascinating. Yeah, you know, I don't do predictions, but I did kind of predict this one. I have to say it wasn't surprising. Whether it's successful or not is a question I'll ask you in a minute. But um, it, it it just made obvious sense to me that a bank with effectively zero funding cost on on that kind of super short-term consumer debt um, wouldn't want someone to get between them and their customers. Afterpay is already offering things like savings accounts and or offering planning to through Westpac. 
so I kind of get that if you're looking at that going, hang on, we've got we got disruption taking our business away and you've been red hot on banking disruption, it's no surprise to me at all that CBA is doing this. Um, they've announced it. It's going to come at some point. They're going to do credit checks apparently on their customers, which is a little bit different. And I'm curious as to your thoughts on whether that's a disruption thing or a um, or, or just a, they feel like they should regulatory or whether it's just a convenient kind of reputational thing they need to be careful of. I'm not sure how you, you see that one. Um, but I, I look, I'm not surprised this is happening. I would have done it earlier if I was Combank. I'm not sure if that's going to work. And this is going to be interesting. A bit like Flexi Group and, and Hum, uh, they were there. They got bypassed, not because they didn't have a product that worked, but simply because Afterpay created a different way of accessing it and kind of created its own hype and its own growth and, and turned it into a consumer offering rather than what was effectively a trade offering before that you know the kind of the harvey normans of the world would push flexi groups products hey buy the couch all right you can have five years just free if you want here's a good reason to do it rather than consumers now walking and saying hey do you take afterpay that they want to use afterpay it's a whole different way of of funding so mate i assume other banks will follow interesting enough by the way cba has already got an investment in klana the is it swedish based uh, you'll tell me otherwise. Uh, he's nodding in the background. Excellent, thank you. The Swedish-based uh, buy now, pay later provider. But this is this is full court press stuff. This is kind of I don't want to overdramatize it, but it's kind of throwing the whole banking model up in the air, right? Where they're they're letting almost any customer who can qualify effectively get um, you know pay interest free for over over four periods. Um, it, it becomes the new normal of how to settle a, a retail transaction if you qualify. Uh, I should say they're also offering a lower rate for retailers to use it, and this is also interesting. So. Let's with all that, with all that set up and a bit of editorial, um, I'll throw it to you for a question, mate. What do you make of Combank's entry into this market? Um, should the big guys, the the, the big disruptor, <laughs> funny about the big guys come out after being the big guy, right? But it is these days. Should should they be worried about a CBA and other banks doing it? Is this fundamentally a risk or a concern for for afterpay shareholders, or how do you see the, the sector kind of rolling out after CBA's entry? Yeah, it's an interesting question. So um, it's like, well, I have a couple of. I have uh, uh, rhetorical questions. Uh, <laughs> I it. So it's like, you know, we could always ask um, at some point, we could have asked many years in the past that CS was going to stop Amazon. Uh, right, right. Exactly. Right? And uh, of course, um, you know, Ford is going to stop Tesla. And, yeah. And Volkswagen. Walmart's going to stop Amazon, right, exactly. Wa- yeah. Walmart yeah. and uh, Volkswagen is definitely going to overtake Tesla, uh, yeah. right? Uh, you know. So the, it's, uh, what I like to say is when disruption happens, mm. there are, I think in the world, very few established players mm. who can actually pivot and take advantage of it. So, right. so you mentioned PayPal. Actually, I would say PayPal is definitely a worthy competitor. Okay. PayPal is, PayPal is gonna make uh, Afterpay sweat <laughs> a little bit, <laughs> right, okay. for sure. Mostly in the but, US? Is it, is it because they're based in the US it's the big concern or they're a new economy no, company? No, no, why just, why PayPal? PayPal is just a hugely innovative company, right? Like, right. I, mean, I, like, I mean, it's it's not, it's a global company. It's not a local company. It's not a local economy-based company. It's a global company with a global footprint, right. with global R&D, global technology development. It's just, you know, and it's, I don't know, those shares are probably very expensive. I, I haven't looked at the uh, company. But I mean, I just think that the fact that they're global, the fact that they have, you know, um, access to low-cost capital, access to the best mm-hmm. talent, and all of those things basically puts them in a better position. They're a disruptive company. They have seen multiple disruptions uh, mm-hmm. and fought them, uh, right? Uh, so mm-hmm. I think 
they are a worthy competitor to Afterpay. And Afterpay is a, is a global company. Afterpay has, you know, um, a global C-suite. It's got its operations mm. in the UK. It's got operations in the, in the US. It's growing really fast in the US. So, uh, you know, again, uh, I think this is a little bit of a uneven match when I, when I think, you know, I, I think it's the right thing strategy-wise for CBA or any other bank to actually try mm. it. I think it, it makes sense. But will they be successful is... And even if, you, even if you think about success, right? I mean, Afterpay is really gunning for the international market at this point, right? I mean, what is CBA going to go after? It's going to go after the Australian market, which is heavily penetrated and effectively won by Zip and uh, and, and 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 Afterpay, right? right and right. there are hundreds of other players. So yes, they can be a low cost. So I think yeah, this, I, that's how I think about it. Um, mm. It's and it's also I think the other funny thing is that you think about it this way. They have a partnership. They have a stake in a in actually an effective afterpay competitor, Klarna from mm. Sweden. Right. That has that has had no. I mean, what were they doing with it? They could have rolled that out as a part of a CB offering. That's not had much mm. impact. It's actually doing much better in the U.S. In many ways, you could possibly say maybe not partnering with CBA has been beneficial for them. <laughs> I don't know anything about it. I'm just guessing. So it's. I think from CBA's point of view, the bank is doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but and it's got to try, right? It's got it's got to at least ha- not die yeah. wandering. And not die wandering, but this is this is hard stuff. Like I mean, you know, this is outside the wheelhouse stuff. Yeah. This, uh, you know, and typically, more often than not, these things don't work out uh, mm. unless you know there, there are only very few companies in the world that are able to to live through disruption, like Walmart is an excellent right, example, right. has been able to live through, you know, disruption and has been able to now grow an e-commerce offering. Um, Microsoft famously lived through the, um, <laughs> the you know, missing the, the smartphone revolution altogether and has still been able to, you know, survive. But those are, you know, there are lots of other companies that have failed to do that and are mm-hmm. a, a pale version of their former self. So I'm, I'm not that... I wouldn't be concerned uh, if I'm an Afterpay shareholder from that point of view. Okay. What might be, you know, you might always want to look at Afterpay's valuation and think is the valuation justified or not. I mean, that's a, that's a very genuine question to ask. But competitive uh, m- positioning, I think Afterpay still is basically the king of the hill. I think that's right. I think that's right. I, I, I think, look... I, uh, <laughs> given my given my lack of tech chops, mate, maybe my, me thinking CBA should do it is a is a good enough uh, reason to say they shouldn't. I'm not sure, but I, I have to say I, I think they're late to this one. I it just it just always struck me as crazy that you know no, no bank wants to do this. No bank wants to provide four or six weeks or eight weeks of credit to its customers for nothing, right? Like that's not that's not in their interest as a business model when they can get the money now. Offering something for nothing is not very smart. But as a competitive response, once you saw Afterpay's size and scale continuing to grow, it just made perfect sense to me that if you're the bank, you're like, you know what? Okay, this sucks, but here we are. We can simply choose to try to cut Afterpay out of the market, which is what they're trying to do now. I think too late, um, because it makes if if you got if you got a, you know you got the bank account, you just say to the customer, I, I, I see the transaction, it came through. I'll put it in you know a holding account, and I'll release a quarter of it every fortnight or week, whatever it is. Um, and that's how I'll, that's how, and you can see it on, on one screen. You can see all the pending transactions when they're going to hit the account. I'll split it in four for you. Job done, um, and it won't cost you anything. It won't cost the retailer anything. Let's just do that. 
You don't need afterpay account. You simply whatever whatever you spend anywhere will automatically be afterpaid. <laughs> I wouldn't use that term, of course, but you know, as a, as a consumer, the ba- I mean, if rates get to seven percent, we've got another problem. Maybe we have to change their, their their strategy at that point. But with rates so stupidly low right now, it costs them literally nothing to simply say to a customer, "Hey, we are the afterpay bank now. Come and move your savings accounts to us, and every transaction, I'll settle in four equal installments." Over time, you got to pass the credit check or whatever, but you know they're, they're spending hundreds of dollars at a time, not thousands. So I don't say I don't know who doesn't pass a credit check as long as you do a, a reasonable job. As long as they've got you know forty five thousand dollars worth of credit card debt somewhere else. It just it just was a to my mind an absolute no brainer to stop someone getting between you and your customer because as I said, Afterpay is trying to offer savings accounts now. They are trying to become. Uh, you know, neo bank for all the, for all the neo banks that are trying and failing around the place. Um, what eighty six four hundred was bought out was it Zinger that's that's shutting down. Um, you know, whereas Afterpay said, "Hey, we're gonna we're gonna you know earn the customer first, then build the banking." So super smart strategy, right? But if you're if you're a bank, how did how do you how did you let that happen? You know, how do you how do you see that coming and go? I get I get for the first year they say this is a fad, it won't last. When there's a recession, they'll fail. No one will take it up. Retailers won't pay it. And then at some point, someone in the boardroom is going to go, "Oh bugger." This is real. We're late. Let's get this thing done, done now. And that surely was a year ago, wasn't it? Yeah. So I, I think actually one thing I would agree with you is while I think this is not a competitive threat to Afterpay, there's mm. nothing that says that a consumer might not be afterpaying via Zip and afterpaying via Afterpay and afterpaying exactly. via CBA, right? So yeah. <laughs> effectively, people effectively CBA could still win and, and, and some share. <laughs> right. And and it's just that everybody just now has a mortgage on their jeans. Mm-hmm. Um, or their mortgage on their sushi, right? Uh, yeah. And and if that's the way uh, finance <laughs> is going to work, maybe that's the way it's going to work. So correct, um, correct. Right. So if you want, you know, so it it, it could be that this is <laughs> this is still fine, and mm-hmm. uh, yeah, and we'll you know we can just mortgage the jeans, which is yeah, it's going to be something. Motley Fool Money. Financial advice for real people, not trust fund hippies. Sign up for the newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple m. All right, let's move on, mate, to uh, something very different. Um, I, sh- I should actually, I should have disclosed that I own shares in PayPal. I didn't say that. I meant to say that while we were talking, and you said something, and then I kind of forgot. And I meant to come back to it. And I forgot. So before we move on, I own shares in PayPal for full disclosure. Um, corporate travel management. I also own shares in, which is what reminded me to say that. Uh, Jamie Ferris, the CEO, sold a cool thirty-one million dollars worth of corporate travel shares this week uh, as a, as a Otherwise, happy shareholder. I was unhappy because the shares fell about 6% on the news yesterday, uh, which would make me super happy. Uh, it's no surprise. It's what, the, it's what shares tend to do. It's, I, I don't know, mate. I've seen enough of this stuff. And I, maybe I'm biased as a corporate travel shareholder. I've said the same thing a million times at a million different companies. The fact that people still sell these things off knee-jerk on a CEO sale, we've seen so many examples of it being, I don't know what the academic literature would say. If we've got every single CEO sale ever, maybe. It's a, it's a, it's a bearish signal. Um, but if you did it by size, scale, market cap, anything else, um, I I don't know. I I, I just the, the knee jerk sell off. Kogan's one I own shares in Kogan as well. Maybe I'm just bitter because I own them as well. Um, we've just seen so many CEOs sell. The shares drop almost automatically because somehow they're supposed to, and then it has no impact on the on the long term share price. So I don't really care about yesterday six percent fall. It's not nice. It kind of hurts a little bit financially, and you know at least on the portfolio level, I'm not going to sell the shares anytime soon. So who cares? But it just I just thought it was worth talking about, and, and you mentioned it this morning as well. Um, look, good luck to him. Thirty one million dollars. He's often off, off to the race. The shares are certainly back to well, they were about twenty one bucks up from a low of I think eight in the pandemic. So he certainly he's had he's had cast iron stomach to see that through. Um, apparently, 
blaming the lack of dividends. Uh, apparently, he's got a house that he's completing and needs cash to fund. Um, we can't know. It's a it's an expensive house. If it's $31 million, but maybe he's got a pay tax on that. And then whatever's left after that, he gets to keep, I suppose. And his cost base is probably zero. So let's assume the ATO is doing okay out of the sale as well. Um, just, I don't know, I, 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 I am completely disinterested in CEO sales as a matter of course, unless unless it's adding to other red flags. Um, do you do you have any thoughts as to are you, are you more or less worried about corporate travel after a CEO selling? Do you have any thoughts about CEO sales generally? How our listeners should expect or or manage CEO sales? Well, number th- well, number one, I'm going to say that Jamie Ferris is an excellent uh, market timer because <laughs> <laughs> I, I said that jo- jokingly uh, in case somebody comes to sue me. But but I mean, you know, picking the 52 week high is pretty good, right? And and I was just checking while you were talking, the, the March 20th, 2020 low was $5.45. Wow. A, I should know that as a shareholder, mate, because I, 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 I lived through that, but I uh, maybe I've wiped it from my mind. That's so a, so it's a, a what, four bagger since? That's all right. You'll be happy with a, that. Yeah, it's a four bagger, right? So yeah, it's a four bagger. And uh, I've lots of packages just arrived from Amazon, like a, a huge number of packages. So that's great. Mm-hmm. Um, sorry. Uh, um, so yeah, I think that's great and uh, good timing on his part. You know, not selling <laughs> at the bottom of the market. That's again great. Yeah. If you own a, you know, if that's the majority of your holdings and that's what you own, and you have to, you know, pay for a good house. I mean, it deserves mm-hmm. a good house. He wants you to pay for his house. By all means. I mean, it's. It doesn't, like, you know, people sell, as we say, for any number of reasons. Yeah. Right. And um, so, I mean, you know, there's a good justification here. And I, it's, it, yeah, I, I never look at a sell and worry. The market always worries yeah. him and they think that he knows something. I mean, in many ways, you could say <laughs> this is the wrong time to sell, right? Because effectively, um, you'd expect the next year is going to be better than this year. Now, whether mm-hmm. or not it's priced or not is, is, a, is a different matter altogether. Um, yeah, exactly. But uh, but yeah, like I mean, I, I I think again, I would you know y- y- your thesis shouldn't be impacted significantly by uh, by a CEO selling, unless of course yeah, I'll, I'll caveat that unless the CEO sells a bunch of shares and then leaves. Yeah, or the, exactly. <laughs> or, or the CEO sells and then resigns. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Now, those, that's right. Those sort of things, then they would, you know, go from being not a flag to being a red flag at that point. Yeah, you have yeah. to think about it. But you know, otherwise, not a big deal. Tell me about that red flag, mate. Oh, just uh, let's let's play that just for the fun of it. So, CEO sells and then resigns, or resigns and then sells, because often it's the other way around as well. Um, is that is that? Yeah, if you look at that, um, I mean, look, if you're, I, yeah, it's funny. I've I've often wondered this myself. So I've thought about that. If I was the CEO of a company I owned, and and most of these businesses, it's a vast bulk of your wealth because either you started the business or you've been there forever, and then you leave. And in theory, at some point, um, you you kind of, if you're used to running the show and you're used to being the boss cocky and you're used to having control of it, and then you say, hang on, now I've got. Uh, in Jamie Ferris' case, still three hundred and sixty million. No, he's leaving. Let's be really, really clear for anyone listening. He's not leaving, or at least hasn't said he's going to. But you know, you got you got I'd pick a number half a million, half a billion dollars worth of, worth of shares, right? And you're like, you know what? I've left. I'm no longer involved. I'm doing my own thing. But the ninety five percent of my ninety nine percent of my wealth is tied up in this one company. I no longer can have any control over. I think if I was the CEO, unless I felt like somehow duty bound not to. I'd sell and put my money in an index fund as quick as I possibly could, I gotta say. Like unless you unless you are so confident with the business's future that you know the people, you know what's gonna happen, you're so convinced about the future, all that kind of good stuff. 
I don't know why I'd want, I'd want, you know, my entire net wealth hinging on the actions or inactions, the mistakes or successes of some other bloke who, or lady, who I've trained, hopefully, and appointed, who I like and trust, hopefully. But I don't know. I, I kind of, you know what I mean? If I, if I look around and say, hang on, you know, if I, if I was an investor, would I put 90% of my money in any company? Maybe a couple if I had to. But gee, like, I think, if I think I was a CEO, I think I'd sell, really, really honestly. Oh yeah, I I I think I, I think I agree with your line. I complete completely agree with you there. Like I mean, what I meant is, if the if the CEO sells and then resigns, or it resigns and then sells, right? Yeah. I mean, then the circumstances around those resignations yeah. is is what is the point. Like I mean, if the yeah. CEO sells because or CEO basically resigns to decides to retire mm. and hand over the reins to someone else and then yeah, sells, yeah. that should not matter. As long as you believe in the remainder of the management right, right, team, right? right? Yeah. So if there's a if there's a careful uh, transition in place, often mm-hmm. if people people sell and leave, or they've sold a bunch of shares, and you know there's some other stuff like some investigation going on, mm-hmm. or you know some other corporate governance issue is up, then those are really bad signs because mm-hmm. typically that means that there's more <laughs> there is more skeletons <laughs> yeah, that are going to evolve. Right. So so like, but yeah, I mean th- those yeah. are. Uh, you know, and in the, you would notice that in the market's reaction would not be a six percent uh, mm. drop on a sale; it'll be like thirty percent drop on. Oh, this person, there's this thing going on, and uh, you know, mm. and this person has sold shares. The market would basically whack a whole bunch <laughs> of the market value, right? But you know, this mm. is more like okay, you're selling, you know, ten percent of your holdings. Uh, okay, fine, we're going to you know whack the shares down by six percent. That seems like normal <laughs> volatility to me. Yeah. Mate, let's let's move on from that one. I think I think you're right. I think it's you know, I I just I don't. I, the, the, every now, you know, the, the the correlation is probably there or thereabouts to close enough to zero. Um, sometimes it sometimes it proceeds or, or follows a share price fall. Sometimes it doesn't. And whenever it does, people say, "See, I told you." And when it doesn't, people forget about it and, and it never gets talked about, right? It's one of those availability bias problems of, it's like, it's like people who make predictions, right? They're wrong 10 times in a row. When they're right the 11th time, they say, see, I told you I was right. And everyone goes, wow, they were right. Um, and so putting it in context of the stuff that doesn't always happen, we don't always notice things that don't happen, funnily enough. Um, and that's that's worth mentioning. Mate, speaking of volatility though, as you were, uh, tech companies, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, mate, uh, about the, the valuation of tech and, and where things have been going. If you're an afterpay shelter in particular, it's it's the largest tech company in Australia by miles. Uh, but even just in general, whether you're investing in the US or here in the broader tech sector, the share prices have been stupidly volatile recently, mate. And you you follow this more closely than I do because your service extreme opportunities has a lot of tech companies in it, and you're a tech investor in, here and in the US. Um, I I, just, I I I'm just fascinated by the the volatility right now. The afterpay has been up or down. I want to say more than three percent. It must be half of the last dozen or so trading days. You know, <laughs> you wake up and go, okay, we're up, okay, we're down, okay, we're up, okay, we're down. And it doesn't really matter in the long-term thing. You know, it, doesn't, it doesn't make much difference, I suppose. But it does talk a little bit to investor sentiment or maybe fear or maybe fickleness or something. Um, big gains, big losses in a row aren't unusual. Uh, if everyone jumps on tech or jumps off tech, you see big rises, big falls. It is a more fickle sector. But this time, it's just that the sheer seasickness of up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down, almost day after day after day. Having having watched it, having been you know across it, having having a portfolio full of tech stuff, what do you make of it, mate? Is, is there something broader going on in terms of investors not sure where to jump? Is it is it a, is it a, a fickleness? What what do you make of what's happening with tech at the moment? Yeah, I guess investors trying to figure out whether 
the, the discount rate should be, you know, 6%, 8% or 10%. <laughs> uh, um, I think the, the part of the issue for what is fascinating, I find it fascinating is there are tech companies for whom the rate doesn't matter. Like mm. whether the rate is 5% or mm. 1% because they're not really... Mm. In the, because they don't need to borrow money technically, right? So there are tech companies who don't need to borrow money. <laughs> then there are tech companies which need money. Uh, and I can understand why their shares would move a bit um, on, on interest rate. But, yeah. So I think people are basically trying to figure out discount rates and they're not sure what the discount rate should be. And, and, and small changes to those discount rates have an impact on those you know, long-term future earnings. But here's the thing, right? If you, if you model yourself for like 10 years and then you have mm-hmm. like a terminal rate that goes for another, like, God knows what, until, like, mm-hmm. essentially until eternity. Um, whether you assume the discount rate of, like, 8% or 10% has a meaningful difference, but the problem really that you have is you really can't know what the rate is going to be 10 years from now. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, so, so you're guessing, right? And uh, I, I, I don't know. Like, I mean, would I significantly change um, my my discount rates based on what's happening in years like, you know, 2023 or 2024. I mean, I don't know. So uh, some of it is just fickleness. People are, you know, trying to go and do some rotation into so-called mm-hmm. value stocks. Uh, I don't know. Like, I mean, there's a, right, and then, you know, there's, a, there's that, there's that, I have said this before, and I think there's that sense that, you know, we are sort of lapping the one year anniversary of mm-hmm. like the loads. Yeah. And uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of like you know I'm going to sell to realize what gains I've got and then book my capital gains tax and things like that. Okay. You know? uh, I think there's a lot of that happens, and I've, I've always thought that March is going to be really you know March and April I think is going to be really volatile because you know pe- people love uh, you know like just take like if take corporate travel as an example right if you bought corporate travel for like five bucks yeah. and you know your typical holding period tends to be one year. Yeah, you'd be selling now, right? Yeah, right. Uh, you'd be selling now, booking your profits, and and, yeah. and depending on when people bought them, uh, this sort of you know whether they bought them in, in April or you know if some people would buy after sort of the peak of the mm-hmm. the trough of the bottom has passed, uh, some people bought it before the sort of the bottom. If you think about it that way, then there's this continuum in which there's a lot of people trying to book a lot of gains, and then mm-hmm. those gains need to be going somewhere else, and you know they'll be chasing. Uh, what I call the recovery stocks. People think there's recovery stocks. So it doesn't surprise mm. me. I think it's sort of what I would have expected is going to happen. Can I, can I just ask, I, I agree with all that on a, on a broad, if it was directional on one-off and a, and a big change, I would get it. It's the flip-flopping that, that that's, and again, look, I, I'm asking, we're talking about it only because it's interesting, right? Like over the long term, it doesn't matter at all. Like just, it just, whether, whether the shares go up and down, up and down, up and down, and end up with a net zero, or they stay at net zero for two weeks, is exactly the same thing. And over the long term, it matters even less because the long-term trajectory will determine the success or failure of investments in these businesses. I think the rotation is real, and I think the selling is real. What I'm surprised about is if that, if that explained a general slow, steady decline in tech stocks over a month or two, I'd go, yep, get it, makes sense, I'm there. It's, it's just the up and downness of kind of, it feels to me like people who are worried they're going to miss both, <laughs> you know, Prices start to fall, they better get out quickly. Prices rise again. Oh, thank goodness. Either, uh, you know, I was wrong. I can buy back in. Or the reverse, 
which is, you know, um, uh, that their wage share is going to rise, so they have to buy. And then we thought, oh, thank goodness they're back down, I can sell now. It just, it feels, it feels and I don't want to, uh, it's always dangerous trying, trying to put motives on the market, right? Because it's just dumb and it doesn't really matter. And I, we're not, again, we're only talking about it because it's happening and people are asking us about it. So it's it's worth talking about. In fact, we've got a, a question about it during the week. But it, I, I, yeah, just, it's, just a, it's just one of those funny ones, mate, that really feels like, uh, you know, it's, it's that, that fickleness feels like the market doesn't know what to think and is kind of being whipsawed backwards and forwards between wanting to be there for the gains but not wanting to be there for the losses and you know jumping in and out of bed so quickly um, makes your head spin. Yeah, so I guess another way to think about this, so I think, yeah, so maybe what you're talking about the market's fickleness, I mean, if you think about, if you think about it in an abstract fashion, the the market wants, or on average, the, all the participants, they think, well, you know, tech stocks have had a great run. The other mm. stocks, actually, here's the thing that, a lot of the other stocks have also had a great run, <laughs> as we yeah, just talked about. Yeah. So, like, you know, corporate travel, travel is not back, but it's basically back yeah, to right, two-week exactly. highs, right? Exactly. So, uh, so you you might want to play a recovery stock, but it's not yeah. really, I mean, the recovery was, if you had to play the recovery stock, you would have to buy uh, in the depths of the, you know, fear, right? Mm-hmm. So, now, you know, at the same time, what people are thinking that, well, okay, if all the parks and restaurants and this and that are going to open... It's great because you are going to spend. That's great. That's going to drive certain types of businesses. That's great. But at the same time, they're thinking, well, but the digitization speed that has, you know, uh, seen a lift, right? Or whether it's mm-hmm. the Amazon deliveries. Like, like as I was, I was saying, like Amazon deliveries arrived. I'm basically never going to do that shopping that has gone to Amazon. Yeah. It's never going to go back to any physical <laughs> store. Yeah, because yeah. it's just so damn convenient to look at oh, my, my phone and put things into the saving. And then my wife has the same, she has my account in her phone and things just get ordered. <laughs> and trouble. I, you You're know, in trouble. I, yeah, when I order, like I order like two things and two days, like six boxes have arrived, why? <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so I think it's, it's the, the thing is that the digital transformation, once it happens, and if people have spent like a year sitting at home doing digital transformations, <laughs> This is this that thing has happened and it's going to continue yeah, to happen. Totally. Uh, so that there's this market of schizophrenic and thinking, well, you know, is this going to continue? Are people going to buy more yeah. of that? Say, well, yeah. I think people are going to do more of that. Uh, for basically, you know, there's been a step change uh, in the trajectory, yeah. and and that's that's also true for businesses that didn't want to be on the cloud. Now they're going to be on the cloud because they have to be on the right. cloud. Right. Their digital transformation calendars have been pushed forward because of COVID. So the market basically doesn't know what to think of, like you know, saying ah, oh, interest yeah. rates, growth rates, and so on. Which is great. I think that's that's the way the market should be. I like that, mate. I like that a lot. I got it. Can I, can I share? I'm an Amazon shareholder for the record. Yeah. So are you. Um, yes. I, I just I'll share one thing very quickly. Um, it, it's you know what's funny. I've been an Amazon bear for a bull, sorry, for a long time, and I've used Amazon more than the average bear in Australia. Uh, bear as in Yogi Bear, not bear as in bear. Anyway, I shouldn't use that. I shouldn't use that uh, that metaphor. Anyway. I've used Amazon more than most, and uh, not not obsessively, but you know, I think just in Australia, Amazon's been late to the ta- late to the party. I've used it for a whole lot of things to buy stuff from the US deliberately in the past, and so I was probably a a, a more likely Amazon user over the past five or ten years. And the last six months, mate, I, have you have you found their subscribe and save program? Yeah, I have. I deliberately do not use that program. That, that's so- <laughs> basically that's what I call being sucked in completely. And I have so, been sucked in completely. That's my point, yeah, right? So yeah. I, we are, we are, and, it's, and you know what's really great for? It's great for the occasional bulky or expensive purchase. We just don't want to bother. So we, I, I've now, I, I went from nothing. I didn't use subscribe. I mean, maybe four weeks ago, five weeks ago. I had never used it. I don't even think I knew it existed, honestly. 
And all of a sudden now I'm getting soft drink, uh, laundry detergent, coffee capsules, just really random stuff, right? That I know we go through a lot of. And I, I can just say, you know what, Amazon, deliver it to me when like every, and they're all, and you can set up as individual per, deliveries, right? So I'm getting I'm getting laundry detergent done at, or, sorry, a dishwasher detergent done on a monthly schedule. I'm getting coffee every two weeks. I'm getting uh, Coke Zero every six weeks or whatever, whatever the kind of, anyway, just, and you just do it. You set it up and it's done, right? And so I've done that a stupid amount of times now. And I've I just, it's amazing how quickly you kind of go from, hey, this is really easy. It's just stupid convenient. I'm an Amazon Prime member, so delivery is free. The pricing is as good as anywhere else. And it's, it's creating a habit. Like it's genuine. So I we needed some grog yesterday um, and, and I, I kind of thought, okay, I'll jump on Amazon and buy it from there because I, I do, it's easy and it's fine. I checked the price. It was the same as Dan Murphy's. And they, again, because I'm an Amazon Prime member, delivery was free. So it's just done. So that, that's now on its way. And it's just, it, it's remarkable. To your point of being sucked in, you are dead, right? And even for someone who was unashamedly an Amazon user, I'm a, I'm a shareholder as well, so I'm biased, but I was, I was happily an Amazon user, but only kind of for the stuff that the occasional purchase, the electronic goods or the, you know, the the, uh, the microphone I'm speaking to now, I bought on Amazon because I figured that's a good place to get it. And yeah, I've done plenty of that. But all of a sudden now I'm doing household goods and alcohol and whatever else. Um because I can, right? And it's just, it's amazing how quickly it becomes the go-to place. Um, one of our colleagues in the US, mate, um, Alison Southwick, she won't mind me saying this because she said it on social media uh, or it was a podcast. I can't remember what she shared on Anyway, uh, Alison, apparently her family had something like a hundred and something deliveries from Amazon in 2020. That's effectively one delivery every three days. And that's probably not unusual is the other thing, right? That's, it's become so ingrained. And to, just a, a long, long, long story, just to make your point again, which is once people change their behaviors, I, I was a slow burn. I wasn't looking to just use subscribe and save. It was actually, you know, it was, it was a, one of our listeners, I think, actually, one of our podcast, uh, uh, social media followers who said to me, have you tried subscribe and save? That's how I found it, I remember now. And just, I, I hadn't, didn't know it was there, but all of a sudden now I'm, you know, <laughs> I'm spending, I, I don't know how many dollars a month, but, and it's only small. But next time I go to buy something, I'll probably buy it on Amazon. And if I don't have to lug it home from Woolies or worry about am I going to run out or whatever, um, it's just it's just too easy not to. So anyway, just just an amazing, as you say, story of people changing and not going back. And I think that's why for all of the questions we just talked about, um, ignoring the short-term volatility is the answer, right? If tech's too expensive, don't buy it. If it's cheap, buy it. But don't don't worry about the 3%, 5% up and downs daily or every couple of weeks or whatever it is. Um, it, it, it has happened. It's always happened. It will always happen. Uh, you can't try and invest that way. If Amazon is much bigger in 10 years' time, if Apple's much bigger in 10 years' time, if Tesla's much bigger in 10 years' time, that's all that matters. What happens between now and then is completely irrelevant. So um, make sure, uh, dear listener, that you are just focusing on the right thing and not letting yourself get too, uh, get too blown up. Mate, um, speaking of blown up, uh, you, you mentioned this this morning. I like this. Uh, Credit Suisse, it turns out, is looking for buyers for the cinema chain Hoyts. Now, I'm, I'm a bit jaundiced. I'm a bit cynical. But, and I've used this example before. There was a saying in the old days, because I'm old, you never want to be on the opposite side of a trade from Kerry Packer. If Packer was buying and you were selling, you were getting done. If Packer was selling and you were buying, you were getting done. Uh, you know, he, and he's not, he wasn't perfect and he wasn't a genius. But, you know, there was that sense that if Packer, you know, if Packer was on the other side of the trade, you, you, probably, you probably want to be careful. I, I these days apply that to private equity more generally, right? Private equity aren't stupid. If they're selling, they're selling because they're getting the price they want. And if they're buying, they're buying because they're getting the price they want. And frankly, the biggest contrarian indicator should be if, if private equity was circling a company whose shares you own, they must be really cheap. And, and the market really should be paying more attention. Equally, uh, if private equity is selling, and I, I won't mention Myra or Dick Smith, but I just did, 
Uh, uh, you know, you want to be you want to be a little bit not always, but you want to be a little bit careful. I twenty twenty one, we're going back to the movies uh, slowly. I haven't been back yet, if you have, we're going back to the movies slowly. Things are getting back to normal, and Credit Suisse is out hawking Hoyts, and I'm gonna say. I'm going to say I wouldn't be surprised if they've gamed this out and said, you know what, let's take advantage of the fact that last year's numbers were ordinary, but everyone expects them to be. And there's a whole lot of optimism in the market, things are going to get better. So it's kind of hard to pin down the real value, but we can make a case for don't miss out on the upswing, grab some shares in the recovery. You want to buy Hoyts from us right now. Am I too cynical, mate, or are they looking for someone to come and pay too much? I don't think you're being cynical (laughs) at all. (laughs) I mean... Um, I mean, Hoyts has beautiful chairs. You know, when I last they do. went, they do. They uh, do. is wonderful. They, they, they've got you know beautiful chairs, but you know, I'm not going back to the movies. Even if I like to say, <laughs> that I, even if you pay me <laughs> to like you know go and watch a movie, I'm not going to go watch a movie. It's it's like it's so much more convenient. You just watch it at home. You know, just stream it. Yeah. Uh, it'll show up. I mean, you can make your own popcorn. And yep. you know, I don't have to breathe that um, that re- recirculated air. <laughs> I'm just more careful now with the recirculated air than I was ever before. Oh so, man! Um, I, yeah, like so. I mean, it's it's it, so. I mean, what people you know, what I find, did not know that I you know, Hoyts is actually owned by a group called Wanda Cinemas, yes, um, yes. and they're listed out of Shenzhen in uh, China. So, mm-hmm. and that was bought. They bought the business from another equity group, uh, Pacific Equity Partners, and at that time, they, you know, Pacific Equity Partners made three x of the deal uh, <laughs> on that deal. So I mean, you know, Pacific yeah. Partners actually did really well off it, and yeah. now I think probably these guys are looking to sell, and this they also probably have some debt or something on the balance sheet that needs to be <laughs> refinanced and stuff like yeah, that. I don't know. Like I mean. It's hard to argue that the that the future of cinema is bright. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm not saying the future of cinema is dead, but I mean, like I mean, cinema theaters. When I say cinema, future of cinema is yeah, fine, but yeah. future of cinema theaters. I mean, you know, it's I think it's challenging, right? It's going to be challenging, mm-hmm. um, and there'll be many people. Like I mean, there'll be some people who are you know raring to go, but there are some people like me who say, ah, do I really want to go there and sit on that chair that hundreds of other people have sat on yeah. and things like that, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, so there's always that. Uh, yeah, it's it's hard to know, but yeah, it's funny, right? Like I should be I should be a little bit fairer to private equity. A lot of these guys, when they spin this stuff around, they they want to make a quick buck. And when they've made most of their money, they're not going to hang around for another five years to get another fifteen percent, right? So they're kind of they they're going to try and work out where most of the work's been done. If they can recirculate that money to a better idea, they want to get rid of the the fully valued thing and buy the cheap thing. Um, so it's something to go there selling just to free themselves up some cash. I, I, I should be a little bit a little bit nicer. But uh, that being said, uh, I, I still think you want to be a little bit careful. I, you know, it's funny cinemas. I think there'll be there'll be a future for cinemas, right? Date nights are real. Um, you want to take your, your, your lovely lady wife out for, for dinner and a movie? That's still going to happen. The kids are still going to go to blockbuster movies and go and watch. You know, things explode in surround sound. Uh, no matter how good home cinemas get, home theaters get. There's something about the big screen that is it is real, right? So I think cinemas. I think cinemas survive. But as you've already mentioned, mate, the fact you can do it at home, <laughs> germ-free, travel-free, hassle-free, um, more releases will be done on streaming at the same time as in the cinemas, so there's less reason to go and see it because it's the only place you can see it. I, I'm i pretty bearish the 
the, the returns from cinemas. I think they'll, they'll exist. I think there'll be cinemas in 50 years' time. There'll probably be boutique things that you go to once a year to see one thing as a special night out. And it's almost a bit of a throwback kind of experience, right? You know, it's the old, the old stage show. Let's go, let's go and watch. You know, people are watching stage shows despite the fact you can watch Hamilton streaming on Disney. Um, you're still going to go Hamilton at the cinema because it's a thing, right? It's a real thing. And, and I think the same is true of cinemas, but we have to expect, I think, um, that a lot, lot less of it happens. And I think, look, you know, I don't know how much they're selling for. I don't know what the value looks like. We will, people will return to the cinema. Things will get back to some sort of normal. There will be a time when we all forget about what COVID was. We're all vaccinated and we kind of, you know, um, are sick of it. We just go back there and, and we'll get back to some sort of normal. I just think, as you say, the new normal is just simply going to be a lower level than the old normal. Uh, and you want to be careful buying an asset that's declining because it's, you know, it, you could pay you could pay too much in air quotes for a growing asset and still do very nicely. Paying too much for a declining asset is almost always a disaster because it's really hard for that to return enough money to you um, to, to make you to make your you know to make your your return reasonable. So I think you want to be a little bit careful about there's sort of you know structurally challenged industries. Are fair to say, mate. Let's let's finish off with a quick dip into the full mailbag because hey, that's what we like to do and what would a Motley Fool podcast be without a dip in the mailbag? Let's start off with a question we had received on email. Now, this is a, I don't know this particular person that, that's being discussed, but let's go with this. It's a question from Ben. Ben says, Hi, Scott and Doc. I love the podcast. Thank you, mate. I'm an EO member. Oh, Ben, 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 Ben. Come on, dude. Seriously. What about share advisor, mate? I'm a, I'm a real person too. I have feelings. All right. Ben says, I've been listening to the podcast for a while now. I learned so much from hearing the way you guys think about business and investing. Your slightly different styles and the different angles you each offer when discussing, discussing stocks and issues is fantastic. So thanks. I have a question regarding a book I have recently read by a US-based investor whose approach is a little different to yours. While I appreciate he is closer to a short-term trader in some respects, there are a couple of points I would love to hear your opinions on. So let's go through it first. He says, small portfolio. His approach is to own a very few stocks, three to four, and only his very best ideas with a view of maximizing the exposure to these. I think Warren Buffett had a similar style in holding a smaller than average portfolio. What do you think are the risks and benefits of a non-professional but active investor adopting a similarly small portfolio compared to the slightly larger portfolio that you normally recommend? What would you say to Ben, mate? Three to four stocks? I would say three to four stocks is very bold. Um, you know, <laughs> I, I, I work for professionally in investing and I wouldn't do it. Um, <laughs> but, but I'm not suggesting, I'm not giving any advice here. Like, I mean, I think you... Like three to four means that, let's say, on an equal weighting, you have 25% mm. um, in, in each position, right? And you just need two of them to go pear-shaped mm. <laughs> to really hurt big time. Uh, or what, even one of them to go pear-shaped to really hurt big time. So it's just, yeah. it's, it's not enough diversification. And you could have the highest conviction in, in anything, right? But you know what, like things can go wrong for any number of reasons. Your conviction really is not going to count at that point, right? And ultimately, even dumb luck plays a huge role, whether in the upside or the downside, right? I mean, and we can't control luck. So so I think, you know, we just just need to be aware that the the probability that we get things right. The the final thing I'll say is that let's say you're you're very, very good and the probability that you are on these multi-baggers is like Mm -hmm. 7 out of 10. Like, first of all, that's really hard. Like, I don't know very many people who can actually get these huge multi-baggers and get 7 out of 10. But even if you get 7 out of 10, like, you know, 4 is just not enough to actually give you that average of 7 out of 10, right? You didn't even bat 10 times. You batted 4 times, 
Um, so I don't know. Like I mean, it sounds very risky, and maybe it suits someone who has a small portfolio and is just doing active trading. Maybe it works. Mm. I don't know. That's my. Thoughts. I I think Ben, it is crazy, mate. I think. You know, you mentioned bold, Doc, and one of my favorite sayings, which is not investing related but could well be, is there are bold pilots and there are old pilots, but there are no bold old pilots. And kind of the idea there is it's a question of risk and um, risk taking versus longevity, right? And I think it's easy to be bold and it's like everything. If you've got, if you've got a thousand people and got them and tossed coins, There'd be a decent number who toss 10 heads in a row. Does that make it a good idea just because someone does it well? No, it's a really, really terrible idea to bet on 10 heads in a row. Um, I don't have a view on this particular person. I have no concept of his success or otherwise. Uh, as Doc said, he's a professional investor. I'm a professional investor. We know lots of them and I don't know anybody who I would, you know, <laughs> here's the thing. I don't know who I would trust to invest only three or four stocks on, on my behalf, including myself. Um you know, I am sure that our members have benefited from our portfolios being larger rather than smaller because uh, I don't know many cases where our highest conviction ideas, if, we t- if we've been asked to put them on paper at the time of recommendation, would our top three and f- three or four give us the best results or would we have been better with an eight or 10 or 15 or 20 stock portfolio? I'm very sure that at least going to 10 would be better than four from I think all of our services. Now I'm sure there's, again, law of averages, there's one or two that probably would have got it right. Is that luck or skill? I guess time would tell and we'd have to have a longer amount, a larger amount of data to work that out. But man, that is super risky, right? Like, I, you know, imagine having a three to four stock portfolio going into COVID and, and having, you know, a couple of those stocks be airline stocks or something. And you just, you couldn't have known it was coming. All of a sudden it happens. It's not a bad, it's not even bad analysis. It's just bloody luck or, or bad luck in this case. Um, so uh, madness. Dr. Ben's second point from the book, diversification loss protection. This author recommends against diversification, which would clearly be the result when you have such a small portfolio. In my mind, Ben says, while diversification protects against losses and smooths out some volatility, in the same breath, it may protect against some upside. Thinking you'll hold some winners and always buy again another point when it's trending up, but you've protected the bulk of your capital. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Let's <laughs> screw this up. Thinking you hold some small winners uh, and losers, hopefully not losers, just smaller winners, then could more diversification lead to taking away from your big winners? The strategy in my book suggests protecting against losses by using a stop loss set at 10% or so below your purchase price and selling at this point no matter what. Then if you still like the stock, you can always buy again at another point when it's trending up, but you've protected the bulk of your capital. What are your thoughts on this approach? I've been listening long enough to know you recommend a different strategy, but I'd love to hear your thoughts and discussion around these points. Once again, thanks so much for the excellent podcast and considering answering my question. Cheers, Ben. So this is the other side of the three to four stock question. It's kind of the justification or otherwise for it. Um, mathematically, he's right, right? If you held four stocks, each stock contributes more to your result, up or down, than if you had 10 or 20 or 50 or 100. But Doc, I'm going to say you still reckon more than three to four stocks is right. What What do you say to someone who says, if I have too many stocks, I'm by definition averaging down my returns? Uh, no, I, well, I mean, yeah, so here's what I say. I mean, I, I think... If you hold 100 stocks, maybe I'd start worrying. But I mean, I've said this before, like if you look at any index, any typical index, you look at S&P 500, it's got 500 companies. You look at ASX 200, ASX 300, ASX 300 has 300, ASX all out needs is 500 companies, right? By definition, if you're therefore buying say, even 50, <laughs> you know, and comparing yourself with the ASX all ordinaries, which let's say an average is eight, 9% or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, you are you know buying 10% of that at 50 
Right. So that's number one. I think yeah. it's it's you're still concentrating, if you if you will, relative yeah. to the index. Um, yeah. Then I mean, can you get hundred percent return in your portfolio in a year? Maybe you can, but you know, but. I think high returns come, it is true that high returns come with taking higher risk, but higher risk also means potential for higher losses. Yes. Uh, and the, I think, let me put it the other way. So I'm not saying anything, so this particular book may actually work well for a certain group of people. Mm. So the question really is, and I don't know because I haven't read the book and so I don't want to comment, but you know, every strategy works for a certain group of people. The problem really is that every strategy has gyrations. Every strategy has different degrees of you know, ups and downs. Mm -hmm. And often what would happen is if people do not understand their strategy or the strategy is not suitable for them, then they're gonna exit, exit at exactly the wrong time, right? And that's Good how point. people crystallize losses. Um, so I, I think this is a question of knowing uh, your own risk appetite. The other thing, final thing I'll say is that chasing, you know, it's very easy to chase, like, one could say, I'm gonna buy every, you know, $5 million market cap company listed on the ASX because that's the easiest way to get a 10 bagger. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, if, if, it, if, it's, if it's trading at one cent, it needs to trade at two cents to be a, a, a double and four cents to be a four X, right? Mm -hmm. but, how, but the question is how many of them are actually gonna do it? And are you consistently gonna be able to figure those out? And, uh, and the path to that journey is gonna be riddled with lots and lots of you know, failures, right? Mm -hmm. um, can you identify them at the right time and things like that? So I think you know, one needs to be sure about the strategy they're taking. And when we say more is better, I think it's, we're sort of talking, at least, you know, uh, I'll, I'll give it back to Scott. Uh, I think we're talking more in, from an average point of view mm. that for a general user, more is, you know, we're not saying too many, but we are saying, we're not saying like buy 500, but we are, I think more is better because it just allows for an average, and not saying average investor, but for an average individual who's not going to spend all their day looking at the, you know, companies and trying to understand what's going on, you know, mm who have other day jobs, um, expecting that they deal with, uh, you know, the volatility and all the other attendant risks that come with having a smaller number of holdings. It's just, it's just hard, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I, I think, yeah, more is still the way to go. That, that's Yeah, Matt, I completely agree. I, so a couple of things, I guess, for stop losses, uh, we've talked about so many times before. I can't tell you how many times you've been stopped out of stuff. Even take, take the... Take the, the COVID recession, right? The market fell 40%. Let's say you stopped out of everything at 10% less. When do you reckon you would have bought back in? Because I know so many people, professional investors as well. I've heard this before. I've written about it before. In fact, I'm, I, I'm going to send an email out today on Thursday. So by the time you've, um, by the time you've read this, you can, or listen to this, you can have a read of that. Um, so many professional investors. I don't name them. I'm not, I'm not interested in, in you know, embarrassing anybody. But who were, who, were, who were super clever in air quotes, right? They got out before the crash and that was great. And they waited for the, they waited for the shares to fall further. And shares went up. So they waited for further and shares went up. And they waited a bit longer and shares went up. And guess what? A lot of them actually end up underperforming the index and underperforming people like, frankly, us at The Motley Fool. Not because we're geniuses, because we actually just didn't do anything stupid like try and time the market, you know? So, uh, you know, yes, I, I get it. I, I get the idea of I'm going to be smart. And here's what I would say about the strategy, Ben, and, and I appreciate the, the humility of asking the question. I'm going to answer it directly, but not harshly. Um, 
their strategy relies on ego. It relies on you thinking you're right and then actually being right and then not being wrong after that. And that sounds obvious, right? But if you don't allow yourself to be wrong sometimes, if you have to believe, if you have to be so right on such a small number of stocks without bad luck, without bad analysis, without competition, without fraud, without whatever. So here's a, there's, a, there's an acolyte of Warren Buffett's. I'm a, I'm a big Buffett fan, right? I can't remember the guy's name, but Doc, you may, uh, who made a fortune for 40, 50 years running a fund. Got to the GFC. He went massive on banks because he was sure they were going to bounce back. Massive. He actually wiped out the fund. They closed the fund. He gave up, walked away. Investors never talked to him again. That is, that's the equivalent of tossing heads 10 times in a row and eventually tossing tails, right? He made a big, big, big macro oversized bet. He'd been right for 40 years. And you know what? He's entitled to be wrong. I don't blame him for being wrong. He made a mistake. What I blame him for is being so concentrated and so blinkered that in fact he might have actually been wrong about that, that he risked the, the fund's capital. And I think this three to four stock portfolio, even if you're right for the next 20 years, anything times zero is still zero. And if you if you roll a zero when you're 55, 65, 67, 69, you, you're back to square one. If you roll at 45, you're back to square one. I kind of tell you, if you think about the value of compound, if you go back to square one at 45, that's nowhere near long enough to make all that money back. Now, if you're over 45, you haven't started yet, please get started. But... Um, the cost of that, this, this is this, this. To my view, this strategy is ego, and I, again, I don't mean that as a criticism of you, Ben, at all. You're asking uh, about about a strategy. Um, I think ego will get you in a world of trouble if you if you think you can pick just three to four stocks, and not you personally, but this author thinks you pick three to four stocks. Always be right. Be right enough to beat the market often enough without any big losses. Because remember, if you if you if he's right for 25 years and you're compounding at whatever rate, and then two of the four stocks go badly in year 26. You're not losing half of today's money. You're losing half of that money. <laughs> You're wiping out decades of gains. Um, now, that can always happen, but I just, I, I get it. And I, if you think you're right, this strategy works sense, right? Because your head starts to spin. You do the maths. Wow, so hang on. If I only buy three to four and I'm right, I can get 20% returns, not just 12% returns. And if I do that for this long, I can get all that much money. And if I use stop losses to make sure I don't lose any money, I stop out so I can't lose that much money. See, I'm fine. I'm, I'm a genius. Um, it's... I get it, and it seems really, really attractive, and I understand the maths, and I understand the, 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 the motivation. I just think you want to be careful. Anything else on that, mate? I have nothing to add, sir. That was a long answer, which made the podcast go long, but hopefully it was useful. I love the question, Ben, and thank you for the opportunity to, to answer and to give some thoughts on that. Super, super, super useful. We're going to have a mailbag episode this Sunday, surprisingly enough, so tune in for that one. If you're not already following on the socials, uh, I'm not going to give them now. We've run out of time, but come back on Sunday, and I'll let you know how you can have your question answered on the mailbag. Um, secret uh, behind the curtain. We're going to record it in about five minutes' time, so even if I gave it to you now, you couldn't make this Sunday's mailbag. So listen, on Sunday, I'll give you that information. I'll give you all the other information as well, including how to subscribe and how to leave us a wonderful review to say how much you love the podcast. But in the meantime, let's finish this up with a very quick message. Full on. Full on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.